Good morning. It's good to see you all. Did you all notice our new roof on the church when you came in? Yeah, new altar, new roof. Uh, we praise God for all of his blessings on us. Let us look to the Lord now in prayer. <clears throat> good and gracious God, we thank you for the gift of this new day, which we have not seen before. We thank you for the gift of friendly faces and this fellowship, for a new altar, for a new roof. We thank you for the birth of our nation, uh, for the liberties and freedoms we enjoy as Americans. Uh, we pray that you would continue to lead us as a nation uh, down a path uh, where we expand the meaning of the phrase liberty and justice for all so that that might uh, become true. We thank you for the long way we've come and pray your guidance uh, in the way we need yet still to go. Speak to us now, Lord, a word of true freedom in your Son, Christ Jesus, um, who heals us, who transforms us, who forgives us, and who loves us. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> My sermon text for this morning is actually the second lesson assigned for today, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 through 10. It is St. Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> My sermon title for today is based on verse number 9, and that is being made perfect in weakness. Being made perfect in weakness. What a wonderfully disorienting text we have before us this morning. It is bizarre, absurd, jarring, and fascinating. And it provides a corrective on the way 99.9% .9 of Christians think about our faith, including me. The Apostle Paul, its author, had a rocky and tumultuous relationship with this church that he founded in the Greek city of Corinth in the mid to late 50s AD. It was an ecstatic congregation, emphasizing spiritual gifts, such as speaking in tongues, yet was deeply divided and cliquish, not to mention morally adrift. Towards the end of this heartfelt letter to a church he has often had to chastise, he is having to defend himself against charges and attacks of other Christian missionaries and apostles whom he dubs false apostles or superlative apostles. He is having to defend his ministry from those in his eyes troubling interlopers. Immediately prior to our text this morning, he has just recited a rather lengthy litany of trials, tribulations, and sufferings he has endured for the sake of Christ, the gospel, and the kingdom of God. It is rather impressive and disturbing all at the same time. It is often a rather angry and resentful enterprise to have to defend oneself, particularly when one has given up so much and suffered so grievously in the name of a noble endeavor or for the cause of an honorable mission. Today's text throws the concept of human suffering in an entirely different light one which we will successfully one which we successfully ignore actually and often hold in disdain for most of our lives paul begins by rather mysteriously referring to himself in the third person and then recounting what seems to have been a mystical experience in his life more than a decade earlier i know a person in christ he writes who 14 years ago was called up to the third heaven whether in the body or out of the body i do not know 
God knows. And I know that such a person, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard things that are not to be told that no mortal is permitted to repeat. No one really knows what experience he is referring to here unless it is his own conversion moment on that road to Damascus found in Acts chapter 9 because nowhere else does he even broach the subject of such a sublime occurrence. What we do know is that it was evidently a powerful and indelible experience for he describes it here as the third heaven and paradise where he heard ineffable things, that is, things beyond words. And in verse 7, he speaks of the exceptional character of the revelations. The exceptional character of the revelations. It must be amazing to have had such an experience, and apparently he has been able to draw upon that assurance and that memory and that conviction to uphold and strengthen him through all of his life's subsequent challenges and dilemmas. If you have never had such a transcendent mystical experience, which I suspect is most of us, then we may have to redefine our exposure to the exceptional character of God's revelations, which we all experience nevertheless, perhaps just in a more subdued and nuanced, less flashy manner. Now the text gets really, what shall we say, interesting. Therefore, Paul continues in verse 7, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Now, the thorn itself is a messenger of Satan. And the fact that it was given to Paul seems to indicate that though God is not the source of the thorn, he at least allows this provocation or attack to occur. And in the next two verses, 8 and 9, it becomes even clearer that this thorn is somehow serving to carry out the will of God, insofar as God refuses to remove it from Paul. We also don't know what exactly Paul's thorn was, historically speaking, Many speculate a physical illness or debilitation, with most thinking it was a painful disease in his eyes leading to near blindness. Some think he was metaphorically referring to the rejection of him and his message by the majority of his fellow Jews. Regardless, the source of the thorn here is demonic, but the result is godly. The source of the thorn is satanic, but the consequence is holy. The source of the attack is devilish, but the ramifications are divine. God is allowing here a messenger of Satan to attack a messenger of God in order to accomplish something in his own messenger. I guess it intrigues me that God allows messengers of Satan to afflict his own people in order to accomplish his own purposes and that this whole confusing process occurs somehow under the complete providence and sovereignty of the Almighty. And it further intrigues me that the apparent purpose here is to keep Paul from being too elated. I mean, why would God want to keep him from being too elated? Why would God want to keep you or keep me from being too elated? That doesn't make sense. I thought God wanted us to be elated. Let's look at the dictionary's definition of elated, shall we? 
The dictionary defines elation as high spirits. The dictionary defines elated as to raise the spirits of, to make very proud, happy, joyful, etc. What in the world is wrong with those things? I thought those were the precise things God wanted us to be in this life. How in the world can we be too high-spirited, too happy, too joyful? Why would God want to keep us, because that's what the text says, from being too elated? What harm is there in that? What could God possibly gain from hindering our growth in that direction? I thought I came to embrace Jesus, at least in large measure, and this is what 99.9% of Christian believers think, to leave behind doom and gloom, depression and despair, and to embrace happiness, joy, victory, and spiritual ecstasy. God is supposed to enable those things, not impede them, to allow those things, not forbid them, to permit and usher in those things, not to restrict and hinder them. What, in fact, does God have to gain by keeping my happiness in check, by limiting my joy, by circumscribing my elation. How is God's name glorified and his kingdom advanced by keeping a lid on my emotional well-being and satisfaction? I mean, most of us think that the scriptures teach that pure, unadulterated joy is evidence of the reality of God in one's life, the evidence of a cultivated and mature and deep spirituality. That's what the rampant so-called prosperity gospel teaches and we embrace without even realizing it. And so such scriptures as 2 Corinthians 12 verses 2 through 10 are piously ignored, assiduously avoided because they are too contrary and require too much wrestling with the character and the nature and the will of Almighty God. Would it have ever occurred to you, my friends, that you could be too elated in here this morning too joyful too happy too excited and enthused and that God would not desire that we have all come this morning with thorns in our lives and we all expect God to remove them so that the pain stops and the last thing we would ever envision or expect is that God would let them remain in our flesh for some greater purpose. What kind of gospel, what kind of good news is that? The new and immature Christian needs to be fed with milk, the book of Hebrews says, and not solid food, for that is for the mature who have their faculties trained, quote-unquote. And so today's passage is the most solid of foods, Indeed, downright tough to digest, reserved for mature Christians who know God is not a cosmic Santa Claus, not a heavenly slot machine lever, here simply to bestow every gift and blessing our hearts desire. And to compound it all, Paul goes from verses 1 through 3 here to verses 7 through 10. He goes from paradise to pain, from the third heaven to begging three times from the exceptional character of the revelations to the exceptional suffering this dilemma entails. From what cannot be uttered, he says, to the shrieks and cries this thorn provokes. 
from a God who blesses and caters and says yes to a God who denies, refuses intervention, and says essentially no. From a God who sometimes brings high and who oftentimes allows to remain low. What to make of that? How to understand that? What to do with that? Three times, verse number 8 says, I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. Has anybody in here been appealing to the Lord? That your own thorn might be removed? Your trial and your suffering alleviated? And you've done it three times? Or for three weeks? Or three months? Or three years? Or three decades? But, verse number 9 says, He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. At first glance, that might not sound like good news to you. Because all you want is for God to remove the thorn. But God is saying here, I may not remove the thorn, but I won't remove my grace either. And furthermore, He is saying that His grace is sufficient. That means His grace is all you need. His grace will see you through. His grace will be stronger than your thorn. His grace won't let you down. His grace won't disappoint. That means you need nothing other than His grace. That means come next week, you'll still be standing. And it will be because of His grace. Come next month, you'll still be here. And it will be because of his grace come next year you'll still be yet holding on and it'll all be because of God's grace verse 9 continues for my power is made perfect in weakness that's the old translation for some reason the new translation leaves out the word my but that is clearly the context anyway that is something we do not understand and so many of us cannot accept my power God says is made perfect in weakness. That means God's power is being made perfect, not in my strength, but in my weakness. God's power is being made perfect, not in my conquests or victories, but in my defeats. God's power is being made perfect, not on the mountaintops of my life, but rather in the valleys. Not when everything is going well in my life, but precisely when it's all falling apart. That's backwards to us. A, a paradox, an oxymoron. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. It is illogical. When will we ever realize that the whole gospel is? Who was it who proclaimed the first shall be last and the last shall be first? The humble shall be exalted, and the exalted shall be humbled. To gain your life is to lose it, but to lose your life is to gain it. Who is it that said all that stuff? Jesus. Time and time again, he turns everything, the whole way you and I understand the world, totally upside down. Hebrews 2, verse 10, has the audacity to say, even Christ Jesus was, quote, unquote, made perfect, wait for it, through suffering. God's power is made perfect in weakness. 
We think God's power is made perfect in victory, in success, in vindication, in good things, and in good times. We forget that God's word so often says the opposite. And that we have a Messiah who said, it is finished. Not when he turned water into wine. Not when he cleansed lepers. Not when he raised people from the dead or walked on water or was transfigured on a mountaintop. But rather when he died in a brutal, blood-soaked death on a cross. Then was he made perfect. Then was his mission accomplished. Then was secured our salvation, our forgiveness, and our reconciliation with God. Knowing this and accepting this, Paul can conclude, quote, So I will boast of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. I forgot what verse that is, Kathy. Can you find it <laughs> so you can put it up? I will boast of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Is anyone in here this morning weak? And if so, can you boast about it? So that the power of Christ dwells richly within you. Therefore, Paul continues, as his entire perspective changes 180 degrees, I am content, content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. I'm content with all that stuff for the sake of Christ. Is anyone in here this morning content? Content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities due to following the moral teachings of Jesus Christ and trying to do the right thing. And finally, the grandest, most unintelligible and yet Christian conclusion ever reached by Paul or any other believer, when I am weak, then I am strong. You see that? When I am weak, then I am strong. Most of us spend our entire lives trying to be strong and never show any weakness. And we are utterly oblivious to the fact that when we attempt that, our strength lies in ourself. And unconsciously, we become weak in God. When we are weak, then we are Strong, Because only then does the power of Christ fill us and sustain us. Only when we are empty are we open to God's filling us. Only when we have given up on ourselves is God able to fully use us. If God removes the thorn from your life, hallelujah. If he chooses not to, his grace is sufficient. Sufficient for you, sufficient for me, sufficient for the world. Jesus prayed his final prayer of agony in Gethsemane's dark garden moments before he was arrested, tried, and crucified. Do you remember what he said? Paul prays here, remove this thorn. You and I pray, remove this thorn. What does Jesus pray? Remove this cup, meaning the cup of suffering and death. Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Does God the Father remove the cup from Jesus? No, which means he must have communicated to his son some way, somehow, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. So Jesus, perhaps reluctantly, embraces the weakness, giving testimony by the brief remainder of his life that when he was weak, then was he strong. 
when he was betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter, and abandoned by all, God's grace was sufficient, and he was strong. When he was scourged, mocked, and crucified, God's grace was sufficient, and he was strong. To the world's eyes, he must have looked mighty insufficient and horribly weak, but God's grace was sufficient, and so he was paradoxically strong. God's grace was most present when Jesus seemed the weakest and he saved the world by dying. That is inexplicably the way God chooses to operate. So when you lean into your thorn, when you lean into your pain and into your suffering, you will encounter the power of God in a way unlike any other, unlike any way you can by sidestepping, denying, or avoiding it. His grace is sufficient for you. And right now, right here, right at this exact moment, you are being made perfect in weakness. And you are very, very, very strong. Being made perfect in weakness. Amen. 